Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today we are recording on a Monday uh, for a change. Uh, unannounced, of course, because I've actually got a thing coming up tomorrow. Andy was gracious enough to jump the gun and get in front of doing the show instead of behind. <laughs> so, Andy, thanks a lot. Uh, no today, problem. Today on the show, uh, we're taking a look at Enola Holmes, the new Netflix mystery that has all kinds of critics raving. We're also going to be looking at Akira, or Akira, for those of us in Texas. Uh, the 4K re-release is out in theaters, or was for one day, and hopefully you saw it and you didn't miss it like we saw it and didn't miss it and we're going to talk about it uh we're going to talk a little bit about disney's remakes these live action remakes uh because we've got some hot takes and i'm interested to hear what we have to say in between our reviews and before we get to all of that we need to of course get to the news our first story this week Black Widow and West Side Story and The Eternals and a bunch of other stuff have been delayed to 2021. Shocking, I know. Andy, what do you know about this story? Uh, well, <laughs> because of, of the <laughs> of the very poor numbers that Tenet has put up only in the U.S., um, a lot of other studios, well, namely Disney, has pushed back a number of their releases. So... Uh, I think we reported last week that Wonder Woman and Candyman were getting pushed, but now Black Widow, which was supposed to be one of the big releases in November, is getting pushed, as well as West Side Story is getting pushed a whole year to December 2021. So a whole lot of movement is happening. Um, it's definitely... I guess I'm not going to say surprising. I mean, as, as late as like last last show, uh, we were talking about whether or not Black Widow was going to de get delayed. We both said it was. Sure enough, the next day, uh, this story broke. Black Widow is officially delayed. Um, I guess, uh, you know, a, a lot of impressions to take here. First one is bummer. Uh, we have to wait longer for more good movies to come out. At this rate, the only thing that's slated uh, to come out in November that's any, any sizable... Uh, Anything worth mentioning is, is Disney Pixar Soul, which is still slated to come out November 26th, uh, just around Thanksgiving. Um, otherwise, oh, and also James Bond, right? Still hasn't been pushed back. Yeah, that's the that's the only one that, that's hanging on so far. Which is weird because that was one of the first ones to jump way back um, to, to November. Now here we are, um, and it's still getting pushed back. Man, I can't believe... <laughs> All of these got pushed back to these days. And when it happened back in like February, we were stunned and, and reeling, of course. But we figured, well, by then that seems like a safe time to head back into theaters. <laughs> Obviously oh, not. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we were thinking that um, you said James, James Bond moving to November was extreme because that was supposed to be out in, in April. And we thought it moving six months was uh, oh, kind of just being paranoid. Uh, we were surprised it didn't move to the summer, and now it's it's hanging on, but it could definitely move, and you know, theaters aren't ready, and they're not ready for just even kind of small and mid-budget films either. Yeah, it's it's really it's really something to especially look at like the long game for any studio, like Marvel in particular. Um back when they announced phase four, um after Infinity War had come out, but I think before Endgame, when they were like formally announcing what was happening in the rest of the Marvel universe. They had this big timeline at Comic-Con and they had all these logos up and some of them were for Disney plus and others were theatrical. And it was like, here's how everything's going to go. And there were like three films in 2020. Um, and then one got delayed and now two more have been delayed. And, and like now everything has been shifted back. It's weird to think we've gone two years since having like a proper Marvel film in theaters. So we will have by the end of all this. And also, um, 
how much that moves stuff around for them. They moved the Eternals to after Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. It was supposed to be before. So Marvel's big on continuity. I guess they're going to have to come up with some kind of plug to stick into Shang-Chi now because that's not going to have the buzz coming off of Eternals. Um, just just some big film strategies moved around in general, I guess. Uh, well, and and we don't know what how that's going to domino affect things that were supposed to already come out in 2021. Are all There are things that will also be pushed, but then it's also just going to kind of crowd the 21, 2021 year as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a big surprise, I guess, uh, that, that this is still something we're, we're dealing with, but I think it's the right decision. Uh, I think, I think a, you know, movie theater owners are probably quaking in their, in their seats right now. Um, because I don't, I have no idea what they're going to do. Um, and let me tell you, it was weird seeing Akira, uh, cause we went inside in theaters, um, face masks on were applicable. Um, it was weird seeing trailers for movies that like not only have no release dates, but we were seeing these trailers like almost a year ago now. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was weird watching the trailer for free guy starring Ryan Reynolds. And it's like, Oh God, like <laughs> yeah, was totally like the, different was this supposed to come out. They were all these things that were supposed to come out in the summer. Yeah. yeah. Like more Morbius as well. I completely forgot about that movie. Oh God. Morbius. Uh, that has to be a bomb, right? There's no, there's no way that movie will be good. Yeah. Anyway, um, you know, it is what it is. I guess there's not a whole lot to say. You're just kind of going to move past it. Um, we will try to keep up with releases where applicable. Uh, fortunately, we're in Dallas. We've got some theaters that are open. We feel comfortable going to. But uh, if you're not and you don't have the means, I'd say avoid them where you can and try to be smart. Otherwise, more Disney news. Uh, Evil Knievel's son is suing Disney <laughs> over the Toy Story 4 character of Duke Kaboom. Yes, the uh, the plastic daredevil voiced by Keanu Reeves is stirring, turning some heads, I guess is what I should say. Um, Andy, you, you got the byline on this? <laughs> yes. So Evil Knievel's son is suing Disney uh, over the character Duke Kaboom. And, you know, he's claiming that the character is is based on on his, fa- his father, uh, Evil Knievel, and uh, that he should be... You know, he wasn't consulted about the rights and the look, and he, he's saying that they stole the look. And now, let's be let's be clear. Disney has absolutely based this character on Evil evil <laughs> Knievel. Like, he has the look. He has the cycle. Yeah. Um, he is Canadian. And, and he's also never referred to as Evil Knievel, and Keanu Reeves has not referred to him as, as such either in inter- interviews. Uh, so this is more a question about uh, kind of uh, copyright rights and also what someone can actually sue for. So Disney was sued for, has been sued for this kind of stuff all the time. Everyone accuses Disney of stealing ideas. And I'm not going to say that that hasn't happened, but to actually win in a court of law, it's actually pretty complicated. Um, Inside Out was a a property that many people, at least three people brought lawsuits against Disney saying that they stole the idea from them. You know, and they say, oh, I, I wrote this book that also had anthropomorphic, emotions and disney stole it and made it into a new movie so they owe us money the thing so, is yeah go go ahead zach no 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 i i i want to comment on this not knowing anything really about about lawsuits and how they work i know you have a little bit more info than me because you're a bit more well-read but um you know toy story is a funny one to try come swinging at properties after because toy story is literally filled to the brim with like mock properties right like Buzz Lightyear. I mean, it's got Barbie in it. They have like a license with like Hasbro to use Barbie in it. Um, 
you know, you've got Mattel characters in there. Like, you've got some obvious... I mean, Kenner Toys, I think, has some licensed properties floating around the Toy Story universe. Like, it's a film about toys. So yeah. it makes sense that, like, what you're looking at is going to be inspired by greater properties. I guess that's no surprise. Well, the other thing is that, okay, Evil Knievel, for, as far as I know, maybe didn't have, like, an action figure or, like, a TV series, or these kinds of things. So a couple of things have to happen. For you to actually sue and say that someone stole your idea, you cannot have that idea be published. So as soon as you, if you write a book, like these people that wrote In-N-Out, or, like, things that were similar to In-N-Out, and they published them, then it's in the public domain, or not domain, but it's public knowledge, and so you're allowed to be inspired by things that are out there. You know, stories, books, other movies. Um, It's you know, it would be a different story if you like if you had meetings with Disney, if you had you know an agreement that they were gonna you know use your your things. But like none of these people ever have these kinds of things, and so it's similar with this Duke Kaboom character. It's obviously inspired by Evil Knievel kind of stunt cycle man, but at no point do they reference it, and you can't. Um, yeah, like you, you would have to have more besides. You can't just say it looks like my dad. Right. So what it seems to be that they're getting at specifically was there was, there was a here's the inside scoop for anybody who wants to know. Uh, there's an Evil Knievel stunt cycle toy that was released in 73, 1973, that featured Knievel uh, clad in a white helmet and jumpsuit with red, white and blue embellishments on a motorcycle that could be propelled with a wind up device. The Duke Kaboom toy in the movie <laughs> is a 1970s era daredevil clad in a white jumpsuit and helmet. The Canadian insignia. He's also propelled by a wind-up device, and they're they're citing another uh, Happy Meal promotion. Uh, there were Knievel toys that had something to do with like wind-up motorcycle devices as yeah. well. So, and and again, you you're allowed to be inspired by what's out there. Now, right. if it, now if this toy had never been produced and they had somehow been talks with Disney to maybe come out with a line of toys like that, you might have a case. But like like I said, you you have to. You're allowed to be inspired by things that are in the public. The other thing is you kind of have to establish, um, you have to establish losses. So if they had like, if we had 30 years of Evil Knievel toys that it was very clear that it was based off of and that you're somehow losing revenue from it, that's one thing. Or if you had a TV series, you, you have to show like that you've taken the property, monetized it, and that this is somehow hurting your losses. Right. Um, this is, that's a 50-year-old toy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's a good that point. Ha- it's been out of production for who knows how how long. So um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, Disney might give them some money to go away. They they might fight it, but it uh, they face these lawsuits all the time, and everyone loses. Yeah, like when you're gonna go toe to toe with the House of Mouse, you better have the, the the you better have Mickey Mouse money, which they obviously don't. Like Disney has all of the lawyers. <laughs> They, they literally could probably hire every single one if they wanted. I mean, it, it's kind of absurd. So good luck, uh, Knievel family. Uh, the son that filed this lawsuit, Kelly Knievel, said in a statement, and I think this is a great conclusion here, Evil Knievel <laughs> did not thrill millions around the world, break his bones, and spill his blood just so Disney could make a bunch of money. Uh, time will tell. Uh, with that being said, we should move on to our last story. This one's really interesting. M. Night Shyamalan reveals the title and artwork for his upcoming thriller. Oh my God, Andy, there's a new M. Night movie 
around the corner. <laughs> you found this. You sent this to me. I don't know what corner of the internet you found this on, but this is from Hollywood Reporter. What do you know about this? Right. So I saw the poster of what's been called uh, a new trip from writer-director M. Night Shyamalan. So his new movie is called Old, and the tagline is, it's only a matter of time. This is based on a graphic novel, uh, which I read a little bit about the synopsis, and it has to do with uh, these people who... They're just kind of in an everyday situation, but all of a sudden, members of this group start aging incredibly fast. That where like people, yeah, like like someone dies because they've aged so fast, and everyone else is trying to not age or figure out how to like stay alive. Oh. Um, so that so that's all we kind of know. It's it's just started filming. We don't know too much about it. But it's it's always exciting, I think, when M. Night Shyamalan does something because he's he's real hit and miss. And when he misses, he misses big. And when he hits, he hits big. So it's, yeah. I mean, you never know what kind of movie you're going to get. And I, But I'd like to always kind of stay positive. And I, and I like to think that, um, you know, he, he could knock it out of the park again. He has several, several times. Uh, so we'll kind of see what he he brings. What do you think? I love this quote. He like, when he announced this movie, he did it on Twitter with just a a photo of like the mock poster and then him holding a slate on day one of shooting. And this quote here says, feels like a miracle that I'm standing here shooting the first shot of my new film. And I thought, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) It is a miracle. You're still making films. Uh, Yeah, no, you're totally right. M. Night Shyamalan, man, younger people don't know. M. Night Shyamalan was supposed to be like the new Steven Spielberg. Like, there was a time when, like, this guy was fabled as, like, the second coming of film Christ. He was yeah. supposed to be, I was like, there. the end all. Yeah, I, I was you there. Know. I don't. Yeah. I was too young. I missed so, that. But. You're right. So, well, so in 1999, he comes out with The Sixth Sense. It's a huge hit. And what's huge. funny is, is people don't really watch this movie anymore because if you know the ending or it's been spoiled for you, no one bothers watching it. And it's, right. a, great, it's a great film. But he made three great films back to back. Like, he mm-hmm. made this. He made Unbreakable. He made uh, Sign. Which were all signs caught some flack, but I saw signs in theaters. That movie scared the hell out of me when I was. Yeah, a kid. I mean, it, that's Sign, quality. Signs was was kind of the the tipping point where it was like it made a lot of money, it it had a lot of buzz, scared audiences, but it was also like when you look back and thought about it, it was kind of cheesy and, and some, and that's then then after that he started kind of wobbling and he had some some duds and also some good films, but yeah, his first kind of his first few films. Were I mean, like you said, he, he was like the second co- coming of cinema. Yeah. Um. So he he fell from grace, and he's but he has come back. Like we've had the Sh- Shyamalan assance. He is coming. <laughs> Shyamalan assance. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um. But we you don't, you don't know what you're gonna get. You might get an incredible film that might be something you've never seen before. You might get a good idea executed poorly, or just a poor idea executed poorly as, as well. Yeah. Um, and, and let me tell you, I, I'm definitely in, in the Shyamalan isn't as bad as everybody claims boat. I think it's easy to jump on that bandwagon, right? It's easy to be like, oh, he's a hack. Every movie has a twist. But like, no, there's genuinely some great filmmaking in there. Like Sixth Sense, you probably don't remember, is still scary. You can still go back and watch Sixth Sense and get spooked by some of those scenes. I feel the same way about signs, dude. When that alien strolls out behind the video and Joaquin Phoenix is watching the TV, it's somehow horrifying and also funny <laughs> at the same time, like in the best way. Um, the man like launched careers. I mean, look at Haley Joel Osment. I mean, I mean, he's not doing a whole lot now, but for, for a hot minute, for like a decade, that kid was like the up and coming star. Like this guy was a visionary. He was a young director up and coming who was doing these new things. And then, yeah, he hit a bit of a, a bit of a road bump. But man, like Split was so good. 
Split was really good, and and people really underestimated underestimated that movie. Glass was yeah, not so much. I mean, it had some you problems. Know, but the, the Glass trilogy is a perfect example. Um, Unbreakable as an incredible superhero origin story. Split a surprise, you know, part yeah. of this universe. England Glass were pretty big letdown. So you yeah. never know what you're going to get with this guy. Right. And like, in a way, that's part of the fun. I, I love this like single title thing, split, glass, old. Like that's just, that's in, just intriguing enough for me to go, mm, okay, Shyamalan, maybe I'll go check that out. So I'm into it. I am. I, this, this outdoor photo he took on set reminds me a little too much of like the happening, but I'm not going to think of that. Um also, man, The Happening had the greatest trailers. Oh, my God. The Happening looks so cool. It until really you actually did. saw it. Oh, my God. Anyway, I, I'll, I'll give him a shot. I mean that. Like, I I, I would go see this movie um, just based on his, his his track record. Sight unseen of trailers. So, yeah. More on old. It's it's coming at some point. We don't know when. It's also one uh, one part of a two-film deal with Universal. So, he's got two, he's, he's doing this, and he's got another movie right after that. So, we'll see. We'll see what happens there. Uh, if, if time is any indicator, this will be a film for widespread audiences. This will be something that will appeal to a lot of people. And the next film will be his like passion movie. Cause that's typically how two film deals go with studios. They, they do one with, it has to market and sell well. And then the other one can be like your, 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 your pet project, whatever you want to do. So mm-hmm. we'll see more from M night as it comes. That being said, we should move on to our first review of the episode. Andy's graciously agreed to take the summary on this one. Can't wait to hear what you think. Andy, please take it away. Enola Holmes. Now, where to begin? My mother named me Enola, which backwards spells alone. And yet, we were always together. So this is a new film by, uh, or on Netflix, uh, streaming now, uh, starring Millie Bobby Brown as the titular Enola Holmes, who is the younger sister of famed Sherlock Holmes. Uh, she lives in this kind of countryside manner uh, where she's raised uh, very differently from women of her age in this Victorian era. Uh, her mother is played by Helena Bonham Carter. Uh, she's very smart. She's very courageous. She knows how to fight. She knows jujitsu. She does science. Um, she's incredible. Smart young woman. And then one day, her mom just disappears. She, uh, Enola wakes up and the mom is gone and we don't know why. And so her two older brothers, um, Mycroft and Sherlock Holmes come to kind of see what's going on. Um, Mycroft Holmes played by Sam Claflin, uh, thinks that Enola needs to now go to a girl's school needs to learn to become a proper young woman. And they're going to try to find out what, what happened to their mom. Enola doesn't like this plan. So she kind of gathers her belongings, hits the road, hops on a train to London to find her mom. And that's kind of, uh, where, what, where we get our setting. Um, I really enjoyed this actually, uh, for the most part, there's a lot of fun in it. I I think Millie Bobby Brown does a great job. She really has to carry the movie. It's like a lot of acting and, and a lot of screen time. Um, it's a lot of, a lot of fun, good family, uh, friendly kind of film. Uh, Zach, what do you think? So I'm split on this movie. Um, there's a lot about that. I like, there's some minor things I didn't like, and that mostly comes down to pacing. Um, 
It's just set up a little odd, and it's it's an odd movie about an odd character, so that's not particularly strange for what's happening, but I'm curious to see if you feel the same way I do when we get into kind of runtime and how the film is laid out as a whole. But fundamentally, like, as a, as a project, uh, Millie Bobby Brown is a ton of fun in this movie. Uh, it's nice to see her get to play a character where she actually gets to, like, talk a bunch and isn't traumatized by a monster like in Stranger Things or Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Um... Henry Cavill's pretty good. The set dressing's nice. Uh, I like the way it's fundamentally put together. I, I like this movie a lot, actually. Um, so, yeah, probably worth a rewatch for me, though, but I'm excited to get into it. So, where do you want to start talking about this thing? Uh, let's start at the plot. So, this is a Sherlock, not a Sherlock Holmes, a Nola Holmes story, but the Holmes name is famous for uh, mystery, and that's what this is. We have the mystery of her mother disappearing, but that also opens the door to other... Uh, mysteries as well she meets uh, a young man on the train who turns out to be uh, royalty or related to royalty and who's also part of a mysterious uh, plot there's people after them we're not not sure why um but th- there's there's a lot going on that you have this mystery we have this dynamic between her t- her and her two brothers she doesn't get along with mycroft home she is a little bit more uh close with sherlock played brilliantly by <laughs> henry cavill and his smile um, <laughs> yes uh so there's a, a lot of little plot elements it's a little predictable it's a little paint by number but it is you know it's a it's a i'm trying trying to avoid saying ya it's a high school level coming of age story which i'm just happy that it's not a a high school movie and b even though i just said high school didn't mean to say that um b it's not some ya dystopian futuristic thing i'm so glad we're past that in cinema now (laughs) we're not i don't think we've ever truly passed it i think it's like the pirate film i think it's just kind of gone away for a minute but it'll come back with a vengeance rest assured Peter Jackson made it made it made a YA futuristic film. All right, they're they're coming around someday. It'll be worth it. Now, uh, Enola Holmes is based on a Nancy Springer book series uh, called the Enola Holmes Mysteries, which is based on the Sherlock Holmes stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. She, the character of Enola Holmes, is not an original Doyle creation. He did not create this character. She was not canon as far as Sherlock Holmes is concerned. This is a split off based on like. This is a character created for younger readers, right? That's what this was supposed to be. So naturally, you'd think this movie is kind of aimed at younger audiences. And I'd say it kind of is. But it it fundamentally, it's a family film, right? I think parents can enjoy this just as much as kids. So I don't think this is going to slow anybody down. If anything, I think you'll enjoy the performances in it. Um, I think the plot in this is a little too complex. And I'll explain why. Because Mm -hmm. it opens with a mystery. Uh, the, uh, Enola Holmes is miss. Uh, Enola Holmes's mother is missing, played wonderfully by Helena Bonham Carter. Um, and then on the way to solve that mystery, she falls into another mystery, and we have like Inception level mystery. <laughs> we got two mysteries, right? I wish it had just been one. I because w- they're both fine mysteries. They're, they're both fine, but it does it does lead to this point at the end of the first act when she, we we have to take like a hard detour uh and and the film takes a hard right turn into mystery b wraps that up and then goes back to mystery a before the end of the film and i kind of wish it had all been a little bit more together uh christine watched this with me and she said but it is together because mystery b helps up wrap, helps wrap up mystery a i'm like i know i know but fundamentally <laughs> it's a lot of characters it's a lot of people to keep up with um but the characters are played wonderfully which i think we yeah, should talk about yeah i said that that leads us right to our cast incredible cast yeah um, millie bobby brown of course uh famous for stranger things uh, as were henry cavill sam claflin helena bottom bottom 
Carter. Uh, those are the big, big names. Uh, a, a lot of kind of who's who of British actors. Um, like I said, Millie Bobby Brown carries this movie on her shoulder. She has so much screen time and she, she's really fun. Like she has to interact with all the characters, of course, but she also does a lot of breaking the fourth wall and kind of emoting to the audience, uh, which I think works really well. Um, really solid performances. And I, and like I said, it was great to see her have like this starring vehicle. That's like, you know, for a young woman, that's not just a high school movie. Yeah. I I love the confidence. All of the, all of the characters play here. All all of the actors and actresses bring a a really, it feels like they really own the roles in a great way. Not only do we have the characters we're familiar with, like Millie Bobby Brown, Helen Ronald Carter, Henry Cavill, we've got Sam Claflin, who I'd never seen. Um, he was in Hunger Games. That was the last big thing you might have seen him in. Uh, to hear my wonderful wife tell it, it is in a role completely opposite type of what she would expect him <laughs> in. But he's great as Mycroft Holmes, the, the older Holmes brother who's very stern and has a lot of money and doesn't like the way things are, right? Yeah, he, he's great. Henry Cavill is a much more kind of laid back, relaxed uh, Holmes, which I don't think is quite accurate to who the character was, but this is probably before he met dr watson so he might be a little bit more um loose as it were helen bottom carter plays the mother who is a little all over the place but being the mother of the home's children that's no surprise and i wanted to mention burn gorman in a uh kind of henchman role he's kind of plays this goon which is weird because that guy was in like pacific rim and the dark knight or yeah, dark knight yeah. rises i was like why is he i don't i don't know if he's just friends with the director or what but a strange role for him and also lewis partridge a newcomer uh, who plays a character named Tewksbury, bit of a, a bit of a romantic interest for Enola, but the 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 star the star role is obviously for the star uh, Millie Bobby Brown. She is really fantastic in this movie. Um, she looks like she fits right in the time period, like all the costuming and outfits she just falls right into, which is great. Um, the the fourth wall breaks are really fantastic because. It's easy to feel like you already kind of are familiar with this actress because we've seen her grow up in Stranger Things. But now seeing her engage with the camera and kind of throw these sly looks over, it's a little like watching Ferris Bueller, right? Breaking the fourth wall not only lets us feel like we're on the ride with the character and get to know them better, but it helps us poke fun at the film. Whenever something is taken a little too seriously, she'll kind of glance over at the camera and you remember that, oh yeah, um, it's like she's in on the joke with you a little bit, you know? And you you get to kind of laugh together with the character um super effective and it reminded me a lot of ferris bueller in the same way like if you thought if you thought the way or, or like uh I, I heard one of the people who worked on fleabag was was involved with this and fleabag uh. is a show chock full of fourth wall breaking moments in the same way and i think that's exactly where it's inspired from um super effective actually uh, really helped me get through some of the drier parts of the film which are few and far between um, but her being able to just kind of, and you kind of forget, she didn't do it the whole movie, but her being able to just kind of like look over at the camera or say something real quick. Um, it's nice. It's, it's inviting. It's warm. Um, it's, it's a fresh take on this kind of, you know, Sherlock Holmes story proper, which I think, uh, leads into the look of the film, right? <laughs> what does, what does this yeah. movie look like exactly? Well, I think it looks really great. Like the, the productions, uh, you know, it's period piece, Victorian England, uh, costumes look fantastic. Settings look really good. There's a little bit of CGI, you know, to, to get kind of far away shots of London or, or big manners. Um, but other than that, I, I think it looks really sharp. The costume in it, like I said, is, is really pretty top notch. Everyone like you almost feel like you're in a, like pride and prejudice or one, one of those, uh, kind kinds of films like Emma, it reminded me of as, as well. 
um it just it looks really sharp everyone looks good in their costumes they don't look like they're wearing costumes they they really look like they're of the time yeah uh the costumes look really natural uh just like the world you're right there's a few cgi shots but they're almost exclusively used for like establishing shots like if our characters are riding a carriage into london there'll be one wide shot of a carriage going going through a field and like london cgi in the background and then the next shot they're in the city so like it's not anything expletive it's not like bohemian rhapsody where like you can clearly tell they're on a green screen set for this whole scene it's like one or two shots in the film super quick or maybe like some quick action otherwise it's all pretty practical and you can tell they did it on a budget, but it's effective. Like it works. And, and you're right. It's best times. It worked. It looks a little like pride and prejudice or Emma at its worst times. It looks like Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes. I'd say that's definitely more, (laughs) definitely more the inspiration for what's happening here as opposed to like a BBC production of Sherlock or at, uh, what's the name of that CBS show? Uh, I don't remember. Can't remember. Elementary. Yeah. on, On CBS. It's, it's definitely more, theatrical and the editing is definitely inspired by the Guy Ritchie films because there's a lot of jump cuts and drawings and maps and like quick newspaper layovers and stuff in this movie. What'd you think of all that? I, I mean, I thought it, it looked really good. Like all that, that production thing. Uh, like you said, it, it is a lot of fun. Like we do get some action. We get a couple of fight scenes. Uh, we get this exciting kind of chase on, on a train. Um, yeah, it does lean a little bit more into the action sh- version of Sherlock Holmes and less in, in the uh, kind of chin stroking, um, you know, thought provoking mystery solving uh, kinds of, the, you know, there's different ways to kind of play this kind of mystery, uh, you know, Victorian mystery film um because sherlock holmes doesn't isn't going to own all of these <laughs> right. so i so i th- so i think uh but it's all it's a lot of fun and it's yeah. you know it, it's got a little a little bit of violence but it's you know it's pg-13 violence nothing to the, the kids can't handle yeah no it all felt very um very tame uh in, in a really positive way which is funny for a character who's supposed to be very wild i mean our 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 Holmes brothers, uh, when they, when they meet Enola again, they hadn't seen her since she was very young. They're they're like shocked at how like unruly she seems to be, and it turns out she's very smart, but she's had no formal education. Her mother has 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 taught her entirely within the confines of their estate. So it was a whole lot of like going outside and and, and having lessons and stuff, um, homeschooling as it were. And 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 she seems very uh, against type at first, but it turns out she's actually really good at this mystery solving stuff. I appreciate that it didn't take itself too seriously. Um, there, there is once the second act is a little messy, uh, as far as that goes that you kind of getting into the second mystery while still dealing with the first one and kind of layering things on top of each other. It gets a little confusing, but like there's enough of a byline there that kind of carries you through and, and, and combine that with the, again, the great fourth wall breaking stuff like, and it just kind of makes for a fun ride overall, uh, that I didn't mind too much. It was a little, just over two hours long. I'm curious what you thought about the length. Yeah, it does feel a little bit long. It's a solid two hours. It it could shave 10, 15 minutes off, be a little bit uh, tighter. The first half, it drags a little bit more. The second half is, is pretty fun and, and exciting. Uh, that would probably be my main complaint. And like I said, it's a little predictable. It's a little paint by number. But like I said, it's aimed at younger audiences that they may probably be the first time they're seeing a lot of like these tropes and setups. So I'm curious because I don't I don't I don't want to spoil the film, but I, I've seen some accusations on Twitter, right? The number one news source for anything in the world uh, about um, this movie may be a bit ex- exploitative regarding certain themes about 
reform, right? Uh, there, there's part, part of the mystery surrounds this, this reform bill that's going to be passing in Parliament in, in London soon. And it's going to introduce um, better voting rights and I think tax rights for uh, disenfranchised members of the population, mostly women uh, 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 and people of color in London. Um, this film is supposed to be set in the late 1800s, so obviously that's going to be a big deal. And this, it kind of touches on a little bit, but I've heard some people say that it doesn't really go deep enough to actually cut. And it kind of just is there as, as, as I don't know, it, it, some people said it feels like it's there to check a box. You have any thoughts on that? Because I didn't really feel that way, but I thought it might be worth mentioning here in our review. Right. No, um, I, I didn't feel that way. I do feel like, I mean, the film has kind of a, a pretty strong, like, feminist message overall like uh enola holmes is very like contrarian to everything that that society wants her to to be and her mother is raising her to not be like the how how women are raised at that that time um and yes there there is this it touches on this political vote about voting and i guess tax and some other things it doesn't get into it's again this is a movie aimed at it's pretty softball yeah at kid not kids but like Famous. High school and yeah, high school yeah. and below. This this is not like, you know, th- this isn't a super mature movie, and it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to go into like, no, I don't know, su- suffrage, and it's it's t- <laughs> right. it's like like it's touching on it, and it, it's mentioning it, and it's, but ultimately, like, it's not a political film. It doesn't no. need to be. There's like, there's I, what yeah yeah I'm I'm not gonna fault it for that. No, there's there's one or two scenes of some kind of profound stuff, and I think that's what's got. What people have stuck in their craw that like it it doesn't go far enough, right? It's not it's not a more central theme of the film, and it's like well they don't even they don't even really describe what this reform bill is going to be. They kind of just call it the reform bill throughout the film, and you just assume that means change. And and some people in London are going to think change is bad, and other people are going to think change is good. One thing that surprised me about this film um, that I didn't know, uh, I thought that based on the feeling and and kind of the quick nature of this movie, because it feels very fast. There's a lot of jump cuts, a lot of fast moving montage stuff. I thought maybe this was adapted from like a series. Maybe this was supposed to be like like a like a ten or twelve episode kind of run thing, and maybe they shot some of it or it didn't really work, and they decided to condense it into a film. But no, this was actually supposed to be a theatrical release. Netflix bought the rights to this in 2020. Otherwise, this was coming out in theaters. They, they oh, bought it in yeah. April, actually. I thought um, they, crazy because no, it, it feels like it has real Netflix energy, if that makes any sense. But well, maybe see it's that, I, I thought really it bought was around. I thought it felt better than the average uh, Netflix movie, so I was I was oh, that's like, fair. Yeah. I, I, I was like, oh, I was like, good for them. This is now it explains why it's better than the average Netflix movie because right. it, it wasn't intended. Yeah, and it's definitely it. It feels like it would it would feel at home in a theater. It doesn't feel like it would be out of place. Mm. I think that's a great place to run, jump into recommendations too, because that kind of says all it needs to say. Andy, would you recommend Enola Holmes? Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. It, it's family friendly. You get a good little mystery. You have a great performance by Millie Bobby Brown, who is going to be a huge star. Like she's already a huge star. She's only going to go up. Like, I mean, I think she's going to have a really great career and, and be huge. Like she, she really carries this movie, has to do some real acting. She has so much screen time. And then of course we have, uh, we get to see, other other who's who of british actors and yeah it's a lot a lot of fun it's a little too long uh so just make sure you set aside a good two hours to get through it yeah i'm in the same boat totally recommend um you know it's not it's not if, if you're signing up for like guy Ritchie action sherlock holmes that's not what this movie is but it says that on the tin like open it up on netflix and just look at it for a minute and you're like what you see is what you get it's going to be a fun romp starring a starring an actress you like and some other people who are pretty good again henry cavill's solid in it um, 
I, it, it's a little long. It's, it's my one thing, and I wish it focused a little bit more on one mystery rather than two, but, like, still solid, funny, engaging, got some good stuff. Not too shabby. I think you're right. I think Millie Bobby Brown's going to be a star. I'm curious, Andy, if you know this piece of trivia, how old do you think she is? When the, How old do you think she was when this film was shot? Oh, when it was shot? Based, oh, based on, like, wow. the performance you saw, because I know how old she is, and I guarantee it's probably she's probably younger than you think. Right. No, I know, I know that she's 16 now, so she wanted to shot this when she was 14 or 15. Yeah, it's crazy. Because she, she totally carries the film. And, like, it is not easy for a child actor to carry any performance, least of all the entire movie. And it totally works. It's really something else. It's, um, yeah, she's, she's really good in this movie. So worth the watch, I think. Uh, with that being said, we should move on to a slightly different topic. Andy, do you mind uh, introing this segment for us? It's time for the death of cinema. So this week, we're going to be talking about uh, this article that came out from The Verge. Uh, it titled, Disney's remakes aren't good because they don't need to be. <laughs> Oddities that still manage to churn out money. And this is yeah. something that we have said on this show a, lo- a lot, that these uh, re- live-action remakes um, don't do anything new. They're beat-for-beat beat remakes. They follow the exact same mold of their cartoon predecessors. Um, and the reason that, that they kind of come off kind of bland is because they don't have to be any better. People will still come come out and go. This actually, <laughs> I, I would say this reminds me of Star Wars. And, and now I see why The Force Awakens was so similar to A New Hope. Because Disney said, hey, if we just do what, Pete, what, Pete, what excited people 30, 40 years ago, if we just do it again, they'll still come out and, and see it. And they can complain that it's not anything new, but the, we'll still make money. And it's shown to be true. All the remakes have been very successful, pretty much. I, uh, the Lion King made a billion dollars. Um, Beauty and the Beast made a billion dollars. And they were pretty underwhelming films, but they make the money, so it doesn't matter. I think it does matter. Um, so I'm It does big, matter. But. It does matter, yeah. So so I'm, I'm like a huge Disney fan. Oh, my God. Um, I like Disney a lot. I, 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 like, I like the man. I like the parks. I like the properties. I like everything about Disney. Um, I, I'll probably be a Disney Plus subscriber till the day I die, and and that's not good. I understand I'm drinking the Kool Aid <laughs> big time, but hear me out. These older films, like they do something that these newer films can't accomplish, right? One, they're timeless because they've chosen an art style that will last and and that will supersede time and likely medium, right? You can go back and watch Pinocchio, and it feels. Like a film worth watching, you can still engage with it. And then you remember, oh yeah, this movie was made in 1945. It's 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 coming up on 80 years old now, which is insane. That movie is older than both of my parents. And like, I'll still go back and watch it. Now I'm unique. I, I'm part of a movie podcast. I get that's not for everybody. But I mean, that's just one example. 101 Dalmatians, like Cinderella, Snow White. You start talking about these films and images are probably immediately springing to your mind of things that remind you of these films because you remember them. You remember the characters. You remember the look. It's it's something that truly lasts. You combine that with fantastic writing, some pretty decent music uh, from, from most of them, at least. There's definitely some 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 songs that aren't so good. You get good comedy. You get some fun, fun family-friendly atmosphere. You get a winning formula. And this stuff carried Disney for, like, decades. 
And then when they started to slump out of out, out of kind of their, their silver screen time in the Masterpiece Collection, they hit the Disney Renaissance in, in the late 90s, and they were right back on top again. There are so many animated films that have tried to do what Disney has done. You can think of like Don Bluth films like An American Tale or The Secret of Nim. You can think of DreamWorks pictures like The Prince of Egypt or Anastasia. None of them, none of them were able to capture what Disney has done. Mm-hmm. None of them. They have all tried and they have all failed. And it's weird now to look at those movies next to these live action ones. Ones that tried to do what they did but didn't quite capture the magic versus these. Because at least those films were original in their own right. At least they stood out and said, hey, we're going to try to do something here. These remakes are just so paint by numbers, but they don't even use any paint. <laughs> yeah, just, some, they're just dull. You lose all the drama and the things that make the other films it, it, exciting yeah you know that like so when they were making these animated classics they looked at these you know stories like beauty and the beast or the little mermaid or whatever they looked at the source material and said okay how do we do this disney style how do we write these stories add songs and then but just like like i said i'm going to talk about star wars a lot instead of look thinking about what you did to make that original film you're just looking back at the film you made and said okay let's just do that again instead of okay how do we like take mulan like how do we look at the, what is this legend how do we update it for 2020 2019 um you know they're just relying so heavily on what they've already done but it the frustrating thing is that it works is that audiences come out for it yeah, and, and that's that's equivalently frustrating. Not only is the studio that made these things not actually swinging for the fences like they used to be, but the people people who love them are still shelling out the cash. And, and me too. Like, I have gone to see almost all of these films, and I don't like it. And every time I walk out, like, disappointed that it wasn't as good as the previous one, and I feel like a... I, I feel like, I don't know, my parents back in the day when they used to say, ah, it wasn't as good as the original or back in my day, it was better. But like real talk, it totally was. And they still are. You can compare the films actively. I think one of the things that frustrates me so much about this is just the lack of innovation, right? We talked about this a little bit with Mulan. Like when Mulan came out and they said, hey, we're going to redo Mulan. They said, hey, let's make it a serious, a serious drama, like a serious Chinese war film. But they didn't commit enough for, for anywhere for it to matter. Like, sure, the battle scenes, they had people on wires like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but they also shot it terribly. And it wasn't particularly convincing. And the slow-mo looked bad because it was over-edited. Like, the stuff didn't work. It, it's like it was made by committee, right? It was, it was made Absolutely. by a group, of, yeah, it was a group of people who said, well, it needs to be this way, it needs to be that way. It didn't have any singular vision. But these old ones... There were a bunch of dudes smoking cigarettes in the animating room who'd probably been up for like 18 hours. They were just like, eh, just, just throw it on a slate, it'll work great. And like somehow magic came out of that. And I get it's hard to recapture that. I get it's hard to reproduce what made those things work. But also like your Disney, your 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 literal job is the magic. That's your whole yeah, thing. The, That's your brand. It's not only the magic, you have the money to buy the talent to make the magic. You yeah, know, you can right. you can look at a new you can create a new property or even I would be excited about these live action remakes if they actually said instead of, OK, we made a children's animated film. Let's make a more like mature adult film for, you know, that's that is, that is live action. But it like it leans so heavily on the on basically just being the animated cartoon, but with real people. Yeah. My, my favorite one of these so far has been Aladdin. I talked about this in the Mulan review as well. Um, because in, in the Aladdin film, it was directed by Guy Ritchie. 
they had to change. They they had they had they had to do something different because they didn't have Robin Williams. They couldn't just get Robin Williams to do Genie. And you know, if you're still alive, they would have called that guy up and they would have been like, "Please come Absolutely. do it. We'll pay you a million dollars." And he would have, and it would have been great because because Genie's a fantastic character. Most of these characters are. Instead, they had to pivot and they were like, "What can we do that's different?" And they hired Will Smith. And I remember reading that Will Smith is going to replace Genie and thinking like, okay, how is that going to work? And it actually kind of does. And it works not because of what Robin Williams did, but in spite of it, he goes in a different direction. He does something new. He has a different tone, a different feel, but it's original. <laughs> it's original enough that you're like, okay, I can believe this. I can get into this. Somehow the formula of Aladdin while like spliced together with this new vision of a new character and doing something totally different kind of sells and it works and like none of the other ones have done that none of the other ones swing for the fence every other one plays it safe they auto-tune emma watson they they cgi china they do whatever they have to do <laughs> yeah. to, to to sell it to make it seem like oh well, this stuff works and like it, it it doesn't and nobody's convinced and you know it doesn't work because when disney had the opportunity to rework one of their big rides in, in Disney World, Splash Mountain, they're reworking it over for 2022. What did they go with? What film property did they choose like to, to run with, to rework their ride? The Princess and the Frog, their last animated film, which didn't even do that good because they know like we can't pick one of these live action ones. Nobody's going to care. We need something that's going to last. We need something that matters. We need something that's timeless. And animation does that. Um, so yeah, I'm very passionate about this, is I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and, we've, and we kind of have to lean towards something like Pixar to get those really well done original animated films. Um, that That's kind of, they're kind of the, in DreamWorks I, I would say as well, but it, it's sure. Disney is, isn't making the kind of film that they used to, and that they are completely capable of. Like, they spent $200 million on Mulan for it to be really mediocre, and it's like, what? Did, what where was the money going to? Right. Like, Horses. What, yeah, what did it cost to make Frozen? Because that was huge. And like, I people still hear the freaking song in their, in, in their yeah. car when their kids want to hear it. What did it cost to make Tangled? Like, again, like those are animated films. They're not exactly hand-drawn. And I'm sure that animation will probably age terribly. But for what it's worth, like, this film's pops so much better. And the point is, like, I understand those are animated. They stretch the bounds of reality. But like, again, you're Disney. Your job is magic. Like, you guys can do anything you want. You can create any live action film you want. Why is it this hard? Why is it this hard to make a live action film not good? Like, Frozen's not that different fundamentally, right? It's still a bunch of it's still a bunch of white people standing around talking in a castle, okay? And there's a little <laughs> bit of magic in the middle of it. Otherwise, it's the same thing. Tangle's the same way. It's a bunch of it's a bunch of people standing around talking in a forest. Like, come on, what are we doing? And 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 it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't happen. And I'm convinced it's because they're just too afraid, right? They don't want to take the risk. Because why wouldn't they try this? Why wouldn't they try to go in a different direction? It's because they're playing it safe. It's because they don't need to be good. They right. just need to be good enough. I guess they need to be decent. Yeah, and, and I mean that as as a business model, it's incredibly successful. And if it's successful, you don't want to mess with it. That's the other part because it's like, what what if we they do take some risks or do try to make it more adult? Well, then oh, what if maybe maybe people won't come out as much or something? Right. And Disney uh, is as for for as many successes they have. Disney has an equivalent, if not more, uh, number of failures. Right. And when Disney fails, they fail big because Disney also spends big. They are the house of mouse. Look at uh, what 2002's Treasure Planet. That movie did terribly. And it's actually a pretty good film for what it's worth and, and use some really cool animation technology. 
um, that they pioneered in Tarzan. God, I know too much about Disney, but <laughs> the point is, like, they they lost a ton of money on that movie, and and they didn't push it to DVD for a long time because they didn't want people to see this like failure that they'd made. They do not want you to know that they have failed to please your children and your family with their new film. So they make these things that are good enough, right? And that's fine. But, like, Disney isn't just in the movie business. There are a lot of other businesses, too. And don't get me wrong. Like, they're not going to go bankrupt because this doesn't do good. They own ESPN, for God's sake. But they're also in, like, the theme park business. And typically, theme parks require themes to operate. And at some point, like, kids aren't going to be impressed by Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. They're going to want something new. They're going to want something different. And when you don't have any properties to build on because you've run them all into the ground and none of them have any cultural value, it's going to matter. Like, I, I don't think these films have to be great. Yes, they don't have to be Oscar-winning films, but, like, they need to be pretty good. They need to be good enough that, pe- that that kids can go to your parks in 10 years and go, oh, hey, I remember that movie. I don't remember the one from the 40s, but I remember the one from 2018, and <laughs> well, that yeah. was pretty good. But that, I mean, that's the strategy I've heard is that Disney wants to own your whole life. It wants to own your childhood, and then it, it, they have you for life after that. And the problem is they're not putting anything out for for young kids these days like what what movie has come out in the last 10 years that like frozen would be the one i would point to right uh, so but you got one in a decade like that's not that yeah good. i mean you can't point to you know the little mermaid's 30 years old that like kids aren't going to want to watch it now right like when i was a kid there were films from before i was born that were so good they carried over like they they still had they still had cultural impact on me and still do now like that's not necessarily going to hold up for all of my balk of these movies being timeless. That's true. But when you Google them and the first thing that comes up is their live action remake, like you're kind of, you're kind of hiding the goods. You're burying what worked and replacing it with what doesn't. And that's not going to last. That's not, that's not any kind of long-term business strategy. So I don't know, man, I like Disney a lot, but like, man, these live action remakes are just so and mediocre. And they have a, I mean, they have like 10 in the works. Oh yeah. Like there's a lot still going. And I mean, as, as long as this formula is working, it's going to keep, we're gonna keep seeing them. Yeah, no, I saw I saw uh, an article the other day. They've they've cast their Tinkerbell for the new Peter Pan live action remake, which also I can't wait to see because Peter Pan has been done successfully in film exactly once, and that was Disney's Peter Pan. Spielberg's Hook was a close second, but I think that movie still <laughs> bombed financially, believe it or not. Yes. So, yeah, if you're if you're thinking, well, Hook was good, I agree, but like at the box office, it didn't do great. So, what was the, what was the one where uh, Johnny Depp played the author of uh, Jay and Barry? Finding Neverland, yeah. yes, also a Disney film, which I never saw, but I heard was super good. Yeah, it's, and like, it's pretty good. Also, very sad. <laughs> yeah, for what it's worth, like at least that's a spin, right, on one of these things. Like it doesn't have to be, it doesn't it doesn't have to be an exact paint by colors remake. That's not what I'm saying. But like, I, you know, I wish they'd take inspiration from things like Finding Neverland or Steven Spielberg's Hook. My God, like what a great revisiting of, of, of a former property and built upon like what came before without treading on it necessarily. Like that was a really cool idea. It's essentially a remake. It's also kind of a sequel, but you know, Born is Hook is good. These are bad. <laughs> uh, you know, to hire Spielberg, I guess. And, and he'll make your movies. Um, Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah, I know. Sorry. I, dude, I, I really do. I, I have like the, the softest spot for Disney and I shouldn't because my God, they're going to own my life before it's all over. That being said, uh, we should talk about an older piece of animation, one that truly is timeless uh, and has stood the test of time since 1988. I'm going to be taking the summer on this. I'm very excited to talk about this film. It is one of my favorite animated films of all time. The movie is 1988's Akira. Thank <laughs> you. 
So, Akira is the story of Neo Tokyo in 2019, uh, which feels awfully timely, but it didn't in 1988 when this film came out. This is based on a manga series by Katsuhiro Otomo, who you might notice is also the director of this film, which doesn't happen often. Typically, the writer of the book does not become the director of the movie, but this is a particularly unique piece. Uh, Akira is the story of a young group of bikers and a biker gang in Neo Tokyo 31 years after a essentially nuclear bomb went off in Tokyo and ended the world as they know it. 31 years later, uh, Tokyo has been built back up into Neo Tokyo, a, a, a cyberpunk-esque city uh, where most of the most of society lives in New Tokyo, which is these giant skyscrapers like something out of out of Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, and and portions of of society live in Old Tokyo, which is this old, rundown garbage heap of of, of ruins that's left after the explosion, where our biker gang lives and resides. Uh, one night in, in, in a fight with another rival gang, the clowns. Um, one of the bikers is injured and, and he's taken in by the government and, and tested on <laughs> with psycho experiments that, that, that have him <laughs> produce superpowers essentially and become a telekinetic God. Um, and before his power gets out of control, his friends are forced to, uh, try to rescue him before everything goes wrong. Um, it is a wonderful film. Uh, it is, uh, just under two hours long, uh, just over two hours long, I think. I first saw this movie back in high school when I downloaded it from the internet. Uh, I'm going I'm <laughs> to say that was a joke for legal reasons, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, back back before I, I knew that was wrong, um, and I my life has been different ever since. Andy, <laughs> uh, when did you first see this film, and what do you think of it? So. This uh, used to come on a lot on the Sci-Fi Channel. The Sci-Fi Channel in the '90s had lots of anime. Uh, I did some research about that, by the way. I found out why that was happening because I didn't. I didn't know they would run this on TV, but they did. <laughs> yeah, but they totally ahead. did. So I, yeah. I, I used. I've seen parts of this a lot. Like I've seen the beginning a lot. I've seen the end. I've seen different. I've never actually seen it from beginning to end in one, uh, like smooth in one sitting, one screening. It's always been in, in parts. But I, I've. Scene and it's incredibly violent, um, and we of course we were watching this. As, it, we got to see this in theater as part of this new 4K re-release uh, that Funimation is is doing. Uh, it's a it's an incredible anime. It inspired a lot of sci-fi films uh, and action films to come. There's a lot going on here, and you have to actually know a lot about kind of Japanese history post World War II, which I I didn't. I had to actually do a lot of research to to more fully un- understand this film. But there's a lot going on that kind of references or is in reflection to Japanese culture and specifically it's rejection of like of Western influence is what a lot of this is about. Right. So (laughs) just to quickly address how we saw this movie before I jump into the review proper, we saw this in theaters, uh, Funimation, which is an anime, anime studio, uh, (laughs) based out of Dallas, I heard, um, recently acquired the rights to rerun this film in its 4k release in IMAX. Uh, we were unable to see it in IMAX because our local IMAX theater was running tenant because Warner brothers locked down a ton of IMAX theaters, which is a really unfortunate time for this to be making the rounds. But for one night only, we we're able to see this in theaters again. I've only ever seen it once on the big screen in film school. And even that was like, a, it was a classroom screening. So that wasn't actually on like a film, like a th- theatrical uh, uh, screen, but um, I still enjoyed the opportunity. Um, 
Watching this in theaters again, well, for the first time, I guess, is definitely different. I, I've always known it was a big film, but seeing it on the big screen in one like one run and seeing this like 4K re-release and how sharp it looked. I mean, it looks right now. I, the, the trailer you're seeing I got from Adult Swim. They, they they remade a trailer for when they were running it on TV a few years back, but uh, this it, it looks better than this. Um, it's crazy how how good this movie looked uh, for for a movie that is now uh, 32 years old. Um, and I'm excited to get more into it. Any, any, any immediate thoughts on the screening, Andy, before we jump in? Yeah, it, it's great seeing things on just the big screen itself. Everything kind of looks bigger, larger than life, like Neo Tokyo, uh, the kind of ending scenes, which are these big kind of, there's big battle happening, lots of destruction, uh, you know, big, big sound. It, it really changes the experience. Yeah. Um, so to jump into the movie. Uh, <laughs> this film is based on a large manga series, like I said, by the director Katsuhiro Otomo. He wrote this, and Andy might know a little bit more about this, actually, because I don't know a ton about the history of Japan. He wrote this is kind of a fundamental response to, um, you know, the Cold War and the idea of nu- nuclear devastation, especially World War II. Um, you know, what, what what would that look like if the world ended tomorrow? How, how would we recover? What, 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 what would we live in? Would we build a new city? Or would we build off what we had? What would the youth be like? How would they engage with that world? You know, and that was kind of, this was kind of his post-apocalyptic answer to that. This is, this is what I think it would be. Would, would there be hope? Would there be devastation? how would the world function? And what he produced was this idea of a biker gang, a bunch of high school kids who are total washouts, uh, who, who go to a school system that doesn't care about them fundamentally, uh, who, who are, um, handled by police who definitely don't care about them, who don't really have parents who are ever present ever, who are, um, kind of accidentally tangled up in this giant fight for, for, um, nuclear power really uh the government yeah go ahead andy right it, it's so the setting is very chaotic there's like riots and protests and revolutionaries and some sort of uh like resistance and it's it's unclear what everyone's fighting for uh you know there's the uh corrupt corrupt politicians corrupt capitalists like the military um but it, it's all kind of unstable so despite rebuilding from nuclear holocaust somehow we haven't really gone farther from where we began and from what what i've read uh is that uh, this was written in response to after world war war ii not only was there a lot of anxiety in japan because of, of having the nuclear bombs drop there but they they hit the ground running to rebuild their society and, and rebuild this incredible kind of e- economy like their economy was uh just bursting um in the 80s but at the same time, they were having a loss of, of identity because they were essentially taking on, I guess, Western approaches or Western philo- philosophies to make this happen. This is represented in the film by the, there's a lot of mentions of the Olympics and they're building this big Olympic stadium. Um, but again, it's about the loss of, of identity and how a lot of those fears are in when we see a lot of kind of the gross stuff in, in the <laughs> gross out stuff in the movie, which there's a lot, that's what it's kind of referencing. It, it's about like this, uh, the f- fear of deformation from radiation, from the, from the bond, from fire fires and just loss of self. Yeah. It's, it's a visceral film that way. There's, there's some quality body horror in this movie, especially in the third act. It gets real oh, wacky with um, how, how, how people look. Uh, there's also a lot of violence. There's a ton of violence in this movie. And like, I always remembered this movie was violent, 
But, oh my god, like, the people who are mowed down by machine guns or blown up or have limbs ripped off is is really shocking, especially for 1988. This movie, um, for people who aren't, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say, it would have been the, the year before the, uh, the, the Little Mermaid came out. Yeah, uh, the, yeah, and it's also the second, I checked, this is the second most expensive anime film of all time, directly behind one other movie, which came out the next year, which is Kiki's Delivery Service from Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli, which is the complete opposite of what this movie <laughs> is. That's like a sweet tale about a young witch growing up in a village in, in like, rural Japan. This is completely different. This movie is important in in the genre because this is essentially what brought anime to Western audiences, mostly because it was so shockingly violent. Um, it came over and hit in America when a small studio picked up the distribution rights and they, they, they made a really bad dub in the 80s. They, they actually redubbed the film in 2001. So if you've ever heard it dubbed, that's probably the version you've heard. But they released it in theaters here and people were like stunned at what they were seeing just because not only is it this incredible visual film in the animation but like oh my god it's violent <laughs> it's such a violent film it is visceral there there's speed and momentum and engagement in this movie that you don't get in live action films and you certainly didn't get in any any other animated movies yeah little mermaid was like the hot release right around, <laughs> around when this, this came out so like there was yeah. nothing like oh my this. god and and like if you are familiar with anime in america nowadays you probably have this film to thank like that is how influential this movie was here um, so to jump into kind of our, our, our kind of characters, I guess we should start to break them down. I can't really speak towards our actors because this was the subbed version that we saw. So it's a whole lot of Japanese voices. I've never actually seen the subbed version fully, um, but I really enjoyed it. The one thing I didn't like about having to read the subtitles in this film as opposed to a movie like Parasite is I couldn't look at the animation more. I had to look down at like what was what, what to read and then look back up. But I've seen the film enough that that, it, that didn't matter too much to me. But I, I so much enjoy the character of Kaneda. Our main our lead uh, is this young kind of leader of this biker gang who's stolen this awesome bike. And Tetsuo, this kid who is up and coming in the gang and and wants to be like Kaneda and wants to emulate him. And he, the, the first time you ever see him in the film, he's sitting on Kaneda's bike looking at it because he wants one just like it. You know, he wants to steal one for himself. Tetsuo gets, of course, uh, nabbed by the government. He gets experimented on after an explosion following this, this, this biker gang raid. Um, and that's when they discover he has psychic powers. Or maybe kind of Given dressed the, him up himself. Yeah, the, yeah, the film yeah, is a little unclear. Yeah, the, this um, this whole thing with uh, these telekinetic powers, and there's these three like children, but they they're old that that we see in the film, and they're kind of these telekinetic. Exp- they're essentially science experiment experiments. Yeah, they look very odd, but I think they're old. That's the deal. They're supposed to. Yeah, but basically, they kind of the way I took this to mean is you know nuclear nuclear weaponry is is like an incredibly destructive thing, and so the these telekinetic beings are kind of like, well, what's the next level of past new, nu- you know, nuclear destruction? What would be? And they, it, it's not very clear. It's a little ambiguous, but basically that they're trying to create technology through these beings that could essentially like create black holes or like dis- create a universe, destroy a universe. Yeah. This is one of the spots where I think the manga shines brighter than the, than the, than the, than the film. Um, I've always heard like for more on that, you can go read it and, 
Because the manga is like six big volumes. 2,000 pages. Yeah, it is huge. It is not like Watchmen where it's like one tight graphic novel that's really dense. This is like six dense graphic novels. It is very deep. Um, and the movie does a pretty good job of adapting that. It definitely suffers in its exposition, though, because the first act is like one great motorcycle chase scene and then a ton of exposition just like just layered on. Here's what the kids are talking about. Here's the kids at school. Here's the cops responding to the kids. Now here's the government responding to Tetsuo. Now here's what Tetsuo is doing. Back to the government. Back to the kids. Like it's a whole lot of exposition in between action. And it comes at you real fast. So... I knew that going in. I've seen the film like 10 times, so I know that. I'm curious, Andy, you've seen this in chunks. Were you able to keep up with that? Or at some point were you just like, I can't, I don't know who's who anymore. I mean, I, I can, I, I've seen it enough to know, like keep the characters straight, but it it's still, a, a lot happens really fast, especially in the third act. There's a lot of things that I think that are probably better explained in, in the manga than, uh, than in the film, just because there's, like I said, there's so much uh, that you're trying uh, to adapt, but particularly with like uh, Tetsuo and Kaneda's uh, youth and growing up and like meeting at school and uh, th- these kinds of things. Yeah. They reserve most of that for dialogue. And then at the end, you get a brief flashback scene of the two of them when they were kids. But for the most part, you just kind of have to infer that from yourself. I think the manga probably does a better job of explaining that and many other things. One of the things I was surprised by in this movie that I don't think I've ever caught on a watch before was who is funding the revolution, right? Because when Tetsuo gets nabbed uh, by the government and is having experiments done on him, Kaneda, in an attempt to save his friend, essentially accidentally gets tangled up with a bunch of revolutionaries who are trying to take down the government from the inside. And the way they're trying to do that is find out what's going on with Tetsuo. So fortunately, Kaneda gets tangled up with them to go save his friend. Great. Turns out the revolution, uh, this group of, of um, what are they like? I don't know. Anti-fascists. Uh, they're funded by a board member of like Neo-Tokyo proper. There's, there's like this this group of like 12 or 15 rich men. They're sitting around a table uh, pulling all the strings in society. And one of them is the guy funding this whole thing. It's an inside job. I assume it's for him to take power. I think that's kind of the bit by the end of the film, but it's a little unclear because the film focuses more on Kanada and Tetsuo and less on like the larger politics. Um, but that was a surprise. I, I forgot that that had been a thing. And also that, that our kind of antagonist for the film, the, the, the commander, leader of the military forces in Neo-Tokyo is also sitting on that board. And he's having his power taken away from him by intellectuals who say, hey, we don't need the military. Everything's fine. Where the, the world's coming along just great. In fact, the military might be causing part of the problem here, which I think ties into the larger themes of like anti-militarization um, that Otomo was trying to get at in the original work. Right? I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and that brings to a good point is it's unclear kind of who are, uh, I'm not going to say protagonists, but like who, who the good guys are and who the bad bit. guys yeah. are in this. Like no one, like, because essentially Tetsuo eventually kind of becomes the, the antagonist. Um and and no one no one is really a great character in this. Everyone's kind of in living in the gray, uh, yeah. which just makes it that much more interesting. Right. Like uh, we're introduced to our, our our essentially hero by the end of the film, Canada, when he's hanging out at like a bar that illegally sells drugs, and then he wanders out to his bike that he admits he stole, um, and then he goes on a raid, literally killing other bikers like for fun. That's how the film opens. So, like, he, he's not necessarily a good guy either. I think part of what makes this film so much fun to rewatch is, is trying to understand, like, yeah, where the antagonism comes from. 
And even that's unclear. If anything, I think what just kind of general violence is the bad um, because nobody in this is fundamentally flawed unless I guess you'd say Tetsuo. But even by the end of the film, I think he kind of regrets how far things are going. So it's it's certainly an interesting character drama because everybody's got their own motivations and, and it feels so grand. That's part of what I love so much about this movie. It feels so epic, not only because of Neo Tokyo, but... Just because of everybody's driven by their own causes and and like it, they're not one note. Everybody's got their own problems. Everybody has things to deal with. Um, I think there's I um I think there's a real criticism of like uh, the arms race in in general. That there's there's a good speech when uh, two of the characters are talking. I think one of them is K. It's talking to Kaneda and and you know they're trying to talk he's asking what is a cure what is this power that that we're trying to find and he said she said imagine if if uh, something as simple as an amoeba had the the strength and power of a human being like it would completely destroy its environment yeah and everything around it and that's kind of where what it's hinted at that this power is essentially well in real in the real world would be nuclear power is to us like the we are tapped into technology that is way beyond what our species was meant to do. Right. Um, and all of this is set against this wonderful Neo Tokyo backdrop that I want to talk about for a minute. The animation I know I've said is fantastic, but um, they really did some great things in this film that hadn't been done before um, or were not done particularly well. Uh, the way they layer frames to create this background of Tokyo moving these skyscrapers, these giant monuments of, of, of apartments and, and hotels and businesses and offices uh, is incredible. You know, typically um, when you layer, when you, when you layer frames for animation, you'd, you'd lay these frames on panes of glass and then you'd move a camera up and down through them and they'd kind of move in and out a little bit to create perspective here. They wanted to try playing around with perspective in a new way. So they'd have frames moving in and out past each other. And you get these like wonderful layers of just city after city in the background. That's not even the foreground of the animation. Like that's not even the focus. It's just these like amazing watercolors that are going on just in the back. And then when you get to the front of the animation, right, what's happening in the foreground are characters. It looks like this movie wasn't animated with keyframes. And what that means is, uh, quickly, when you when you animate a film, typically, you'll have one main artist draw keyframes every, I don't know, uh, five or 10 or 20 frames out of 24 frames in a second. You'll have one artist draw one image of a character. And then you'll have another artist step in, a fill-in artist, and they'll have to draw every frame between those frames that the main artist drew. So a main artist will draw four frames in, in one second of animation, or maybe one frame in one second of animation. And it's up to a fill-in artist to draw the other 23 to make it look good, to, to have them transition through dialogue, to fill out that basic stuff, right? It looks like they didn't use any fill-ins here. It looks like every single frame is hand-drawn to perfection by an artist who really cared. And they had the budget to do it. This is still the second highest, gro- highest budget animated film and anime ever, next to Kiki's Delivery Service, which is crazy. Um, just a film of excess and confidence and it's, it's, it's boldness is, is really a draw for me. It just, it just comes out swinging on every note. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, it was a really good, good experience. There's a lot in there. And like I said, I, I think if you, if you're not familiar with a lot of, you know, uh, what Japanese culture and politics were in the eighties, you're probably gonna have to do, uh, some research. And I, and I, I definitely need to do some more reading. I'd like to read some like scholarly, uh, works on, on the film. Cause I, I think there's a lot there that, uh, you're just not going to know if that's not your culture. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and I feel the same way. I really need to go back and read like the actual manga proper for all the times I've seen the anime. 
Um, I love this movie. I really do. It's 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 a testament to like creativity in a way that just isn't done anymore. Like nobody. I mean, there's a reason this still holds up as like one of one of the more expensive films because after this people thought we don't need to do it that big we can do it cheaper we can do it faster we can do it more efficiently we can get fill-in artists instead of keyframe artists we can we can stop using so many layers and like you don't you don't get movies that are this grand anymore it's a little like i don't know your 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 grandparents talking about gone with the wind there had just been (laughs) nothing like it before and in a way there hasn't been anything since this movie not only did new things in japan it ushered in anime as a genre in america it is crazy what this film do- did. And like, maybe there would have been something else, right? Maybe, maybe Miyazaki would have broken through Kiki's delivery service and that would have done it instead. But it still stands the test of time. Like this movie is still grand in a way that films just aren't anymore. I love it. I love the confidence. I love that Katsuhiro uh, Tomo adapted his own work and directed it himself. That also doesn't happen anymore. Like, man, talk about a pet project. And like, this guy just had an unflinching vision. And I think it I think it worked like gangbusters. I really do. I, I respect the hell out of him for it. So, with that being said, any other thoughts for recommendations? Uh, I think I'm ready to for All recommendations. Right. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know if we have anything else to say about it, and I feel like I'm just talking in circles, so I should probably bail. But uh, Andy, would you recommend Acura? Uh, absolutely. With some strong content warnings, what I which I'll get into. Um, but yeah, it's an incredible work of J- Japanese animation, like you said, heralded the the arrival of, of modern day anime. Uh, that, like I said, I we saw it really start to proliferate in the '90s, and is a huge uh, thing now. And it's this is a seminal work, an incredible time. Like I can't believe they made something like this in, in the '80s. Um, and it's just it's super deep and philosophical and like i said has a lot to do with world history and japanese history and culture and just a really great film it is incredibly violent does have uh a lot of pretty disturbing uh imagery some of which i can't believe they're shown in the trailer here yeah Um, but so strong content warnings Right. Um, like I said, this trailer is from Adult Swim. So if you're watching this on Facebook Live and we're running the show um, or on YouTube after the fact, I'm sure we've gotten copyright flagged for it. And um, yeah, I, again, Adult Swim had to make this because they were running the, the, this film for a little while. The the TV version, which is also what ran on sci-fi. Um, hard to believe this movie runs, runs uh, on television, but there is a highly edited version, apparently, which is functional somehow. The FCC lets that by. No, I, I love this movie. I'd recommend this to almost anybody. It is incredibly violent. Uh, there are some trigger warnings, including things like uh, um, ultraviolence, body horror, and rape at one point. Um, it is <laughs> it is not necessarily a nice film, but like you, considering what it's done and the legacy it's had and that it can still come out in theaters in America literally this week is crazy. Um, the, way it, <laughs> the way the showdown is it... The, the, the 2020 Tokyo Olympics headquarters, which also isn't happening this year due to what's happening in the world, is nuts. Like somehow it feels timely the way we have rioters present in old Tokyo who are rioting against a government they feel doesn't represent them is crazy. Like it it somehow comes off feeling timeless yeah, it, in it the feels, oddest way. It feels very contemporary. Yes. Despite um, the 30 year difference. Despite the fact that it's 32 years old, I love this movie. I, I think it's so good. Uh, I, I would recommend it to anybody who's a fan of anime and hasn't seen it. I know it is heavy on the mature themes, but like, oh man, if you can stomach it, you should absolutely watch this movie. I, I two, two thumbs way up. And that's how I feel about Akira. Andy, I'm so sorry. I feel like I talked forever in the middle of that. <laughs> that's all right. Um, 
It's okay, though. We're going to move past it. What are we doing next week? Uh, next week, we're going to be on break. Uh, no, no big releases, which we're going to be struggling with for a while. But some things to look forward to in October are uh, The Trial of the Chicago 7, which is going to be on Netflix. Uh, the Perfect Weapon, which is a cybersecurity documentary on uh, or cyber warfare documentary on HBO. And then uh, some more to come after that. Yes. So taking it off next week. It's funny, like... <laughs> There's just nothing coming out. Um, you know, there's stuff we could watch on streaming, and we will. We will have plenty of time. We were to supposed to see Wonder Woman soon. Yeah, I know. We were supposed to see Wonder Woman. So it's fine. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep you up to date on what's going on. But otherwise, uh, follow us on Facebook if you want to know more. We're going to keep up with what we're doing. That's where we're streaming the show every Tuesday, except today, because it is Monday. Sorry again. We're also on YouTube, where we post full versions of the show, so you can see us there as well. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We don't post a whole lot there. But if you wanted to message us or reach out to us, you'd absolutely do it there. You could find us at offscriptfilmreview.com, where we're posting full episodes, clips, bits, and interviews, which, oh my God. I forgot to ask. And you did another interview for the show. I did. And you got them to um, say the home of bold cinema, which I love. <laughs> I tried to all the, always get them. Uh, yes, it I sounds was, so uh, legit. I was uh, interviewed on this morning with Gordon Deal last week, actually. Um, and I think I, I actually did mention it last week, but it is now uh, live. It's up on our website. And I'm just talking about um, Hollywood and how they're uh, very uh, real hesitant to put out any new releases because of uh coronavirus or rather because audiences are still not going to the theater you're doing the lord's work andy if you want to be involved in what we're doing at off script and you want us to remember you as we're rocketing to the top all right when you see us number one on itunes you think i remember listening to those guys leave us a rating and review or write in the show mail at offscriptfilmview.com and we'll uh you know we'll read it on the air we'll check in with you We'll, we'll find out what you think about whatever we're watching or some new movie we haven't seen we take suggestions recommendations even a little bit of criticism if it's constructive or just subscribe that's a great way you could uh, you know help us out too that that helps us a bunch you wouldn't believe it subscribe to the show to get more off script every single week except for next week because we're off uh with that being said i think that covers all the bases um yeah. Anything else, Andy? Is that it? That's it. I'm ready. That's it. <laughs> all right. From all of us <laughs> at Offscript Film Review, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching. <laughs>